If you're an established woman in tech who is creating results and making an impact at work, so your workload and stress just keep growing, but promotions and salary bumps remain a distant dream, it's time for a change. Listen, we all know the tech industry has dramatically changed. It's time your career approach did too. You don't need cookie cutter programs or dusty advice from outdated playbooks because What works for tech bros won't work for you. You need individualized, bespoke support to build your brave career. One that reflects who you are as a woman in tech. I invite you to explore career coaching with me. Get all the details, including prices and client results at tricksteinbach.com. You can stress less work less, and earn more. You've already earned it. Let's make it happen. Welcome to the Celebrate Brave podcast. I'm Nicole Trick-Steinbach, your host and the international bravery coach for women in tech. I serve women all over the world to earn more money, create more opportunities, and thrive in the tech industry because tech needs all of us. Are you ready? Let's go. Hello, brave people. Today, I get to share with you a raw and real conversation with Jess Tillis. We share a lot about Jess's background in this conversation, so I'm not going to waste your time doing that again. What I am going to say is we do touch on mental health and intrusive thoughts. So if that's something that doesn't suit you right now, come back and listen to this another time. The other thing we touch on is the power of the informational interview, sometimes also called an interest interview, and how that approach, that skill can transform your career and your network and set you up for massive transformation and also getting exposure to ideas and concepts and people you wouldn't get in any other way. So I know you're going to get some powerful insight. Let's dive in. Hi, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Nicole. So I'm really excited to share your story, but before we dive in, you were in education for quite a while. It's now summertime. All the American children are out. Feeling jealous? No. No. I have not (laughs) not looked back. So no, and my wife is still in education, so I have, you know, that bit to hold on to, but Oh, I didn't realize that she's still in education. Yeah, she's in HR for for a school district here in Denver. Oh, I had no idea. Oh, so you still have it up close. She's not in a building on the floor, so yeah. not that up close, but but yes, okay. still have a connection and still not jealous of summer. No. Happy to be working. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. Tech. <laughs> and my impression just seeing the parking lots is that they're still working. Uh not necessarily in the summer. There might be summer school for a few weeks, which is fairly decent money okay. for for what you're 
doing at that point compared to the rest of the year. And then, I mean, just depends on, I think most people try to disconnect for at least a few weeks before doing more lesson planning or prepping or prepping the school building or your instructional team. But yeah. Okay. Okay. Clear expectations. But that's actually the beginning of your brave story. Yes. Would you like to share it? Sure. Sure. So I actually wanted to be a teacher since third grade in seeing a teacher of mine. And she said at the time, I'm not good at math and then proceeded to try to teach us math. And I thought to myself, well, I am good at math, so perhaps I should try to teach people math one day. I started to keep a notebook at that time of the, the effective and ineffective teacher moves she made at age eight. And I still have the notebook about what I thought was effective about her teaching place value and what was ineffective about getting students' attention. And and really like- Okay, in, okay, okay. Did you use the words ineffective and effective? I- I I need I would need to look back at the page. I I don't want to you know lie to you. I don't. Know. I adore this. And and I've been thinking about how I've like really taken that pra- that eight year old practice into my general development. Like I have been watching leaders, peers, and leaders of all types throughout my life, and like legitimately write down what I, you know, phrases or behaviors that I want to mm-hmm. try on as a leader. Um, and I think that's helped me progress more quickly than than I would have otherwise. So that was the beginning, was in third grade deciding I should be a teacher. Ended up joining Teach for America out of college after getting an education degree, which is abnormal, and working in Teach for America in St. Louis, and then worked in Denver Public Schools in a charter school for seven years. During that time, really enjoyed my time as a teacher, and then moved into being an assistant principal, really loved that, felt probably most successful in that role. And then I remember very clearly when my boss, who I adore and was one of the people I took copious notes on her leadership style, she asked me to apply for this principal fellowship program, which is basically a track to becoming a principal. And like, yes, it was always something I wanted to do was become a principal. Not always. That's not true because third grade was teaching. Third grade. Um, (laughs) In my second year as as a teacher in St. Louis, I had a similar experience with my principal there. I was like, I could do a better job than this. So Mm. let me try to do this. So my boss approached me about joining this principal fellowship program. And I I immediately said, no, I don't want to be a principal in a year. She said, well, actually, it's a one to three year program. We can put you on the three year track. So I thought about it and she was convincing. And I said yes to the three year track. To the three-year track. Correct. And so it was probably December of that school year. And in April, I applied for the principal fellowship. I then had to interview. And the interview was pretty high stakes because it basically meant that when there was a spot, a principal opening in our charter school network, I would not really interview at that point. I was interviewing now. And so the day before the interview was told that my boss was going to be sticking around for one more school year, and then I would be taking over the school. So within four months, until the day before the interview, I did not know that I was going to the one-year track that I actively did not want to take on. Um, (laughs) And so that was a lot. In the interview, my CEO, who is also a fantastic leader, was saying, you know, there's like two buckets of leaders, people who think they're ready and aren't ready, and people who are ready and don't think they're ready. And I think you fall into that second bucket, Jess. I'm like, okay. That's convincing, you know, I'm ready, but I don't think I'm ready. And maybe that's Mm. what's happening here. 
And so I, I stepped into the principal fellowship. I stepped into a principal role. Um, I was in that role for three years, led with very strong teachers and school leaders doing incredibly challenging work and rewarding work and love and miss my students and teachers. And really at the end of those three years, decided that I was, it was very, like I said, very hard. I was working my butt off, was incredibly stressed and was getting okay results. And I was like, someone can do this just as well or better than me. It doesn't have to be me. So it was both like, I wanted better for our community and our kids, and I wanted better for myself. And so I started thinking about what my next move would be. Given how I wanted to be a teacher since age eight, I was very tunnel visioned and had no idea what the rest of society was doing with their time or their lives or like what other careers one might take on. Like when I would drive around in the middle of the school day, I'd be like, what are these people driving around I was just going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'd be like delivering tests to the testing, whatever building. Mm -hmm. And I'd just be shocked. And all the adults (laughs) out and about or like run in to get a coffee one time a year when I like gave myself that gift. And like, what are these people doing working at these, these tables here? So I I was interested, but I had no idea. And uh, my brothers were both in finance. So I... I knew there was that. I also knew I was good at Excel, Microsoft Excel. And I was like, okay, like I like numbers. Yes, I like numbers. (laughs) I like math. Let's see what we can do here. I I worked with a career coach at the time, Danielle Mendich, and she really taught me like just the basics of networking was really critical and like the basics of what I'm excited about and passionate about, which was pretty much like math, logic, processes, organization, efficiency. Not shocking. I eventually end up in revenue operations, but I did not so, know that then. Before you pop into that, for sure. and you're totally going to have to describe what revenue operations are, because mm-hmm. most people are just not familiar with it. Sure. So your motivation, you've had this desire to be a teacher, you reach the goal, you overachieve, then you over, overachieve. Your motivation to shift was that you wanted something better, like for your clients sure, and yes. for yourself. Correct. So you were not miserable. You were not on the floor. You were not rock bottom. I was not rock bottom. I was not, I was not great. I think so like to be quite transparent in my last year as a principal, I knew going into that year. So my second year was challenging. I was put on a performance improvement plan in March of that school year. and rallied my teachers like I very much remember sitting down in the cafeteria with like my strongest teachers and school leaders 13 people and being like here's my improvement plan here's what we need to fix and it wasn't about me it was about these are the things that the school deserves that I'm not delivering on and I need to lead through myself and you and we just like went through like what are the things we're going to like we just built an action plan I called it impromptu meeting and we built an action plan about how to make the school better and how to get me off an improvement plan at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I did graduate that improvement plan. It was an incredible learning experience. And like, as I, you know, in having to put people on improvement plans in my role now, I feel a lot more empathy for that person and yeah. understand what it takes to get off of an improvement plan and like prove your value. And so that was definitely challenging. And then going into my third year, I felt good about where I was. I wanted to either commit to being in education and at my school for like three or four years, which wasn't the norm in my 
school district okay. to be in my network to be at a school for that many years. It was like two to four years in the principal role. And I saw value in going longer, yeah. right? Being there for longer, only get easier as I learned and got better. And so it was like, I'm either going to be here for another four or five years, or I need this to be my last year. And I want to give the school and my leadership enough time to, to fill me with someone great. In that third school year, I started keeping a tally every day of if it was a principal day or a not principal day. And the bar for a, for a principal day was very low. It basically meant like, I felt like I had agency and like a path forward in what I was doing. And not principal day was like, I felt like I had no agency and was not making an impact. Uh, that is a very, very low bar. Uh-huh. Indeed. So, yes. So tallying away. And I ended up actually having more tallies. I said I wanted to decide by November. I ended up having more tallies in the principal day column, meaning I should stay a principal. But I'm looking at the tallies and I'm like, these non-principal tallies feel awful. And like, there are fewer of them, but there are too many of them. And like, they're overpowering the principal days where the bar was too low, right? And it probably, if I'd raised yeah. the bar, it would have been flipped. Like there would have not been that many <laughs> principal days. But I like wanted it to be the principal decision, but it like couldn't be the principal decision. So that I had that data in front of me. And then really the turning point, the thing that made me be like, it's time to, to say that this is done. I was leaving my school, uh, turning left on the way to a recruiting event to recruit fifth graders and was turning left into like bright sunlight. And I was like, I don't think there's anyone coming right now. And I think I can turn, but I don't know if I care. And so I made the turn. I was just fine. There was no one coming. Yeah. But I was like, that's not a normal thought. And so I called immediately called a bunch of people. Mostly in my, like my, my boss, uh, a few people, it was the CEO that ended up answering like my fourth call. And so he spoke to me and like, kind of talked me through it, helped me process. I, I did go to the recruiting event, which probably wasn't the thing to do. And then got home and my wife was like, time to call yeah. the EAP and like, get some help and process this because this, so she's in social work. So that is helpful to have. So all of that combined, I was like, yep, this is going to be my last year rock bottom i'm sure there's a way way bottomer you can go but yeah. it wasn't yeah. wasn't pretty yeah what i wanted to pull through that is first of all thank you so much for the honesty and god bless your wife right yeah. that's incredible strength of purpose and shows just how wonderful you are <laughs> and also it doesn't have to be horrific for years and years and years before we make a change. Yep. You felt that after wanting to do this since you were eight. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't. I let it get really bad, like really, really bad. Yeah. So I am so inspired by your choice to look at these tallies because I would make lists and then they'd be like, well, there's more on this side. I'll just keep suffering. It's like a low grade suffering. That's okay. Yeah. So keep going. So you wanted to make a change. Finance. <laughs> so yes. Um, so so yes, was go had a career coach. And again, the things she showed me were one, how to network. I think like oh yeah. Networking is I don't really know where you're supposed to know where learn what that means besides for a career coach. I think it sounds like you're either like 
born with parents who networked or you were not for various reasons, mostly socioeconomic reasons. And so like my wife, her her parents were at Procter and Gamble. So they like knew the game. Networking. Oh, totally knew, yeah. Like, yeah, um, Diane, go do these things. You're networking now. Good job. <laughs> this was not the case for me. My mom was an occupy they had my parents had wonderful jobs, but like they were an occupational therapist and a lawyer. We did not discuss networking. And I'm like reflecting. I'm I'm Jewish. And so I think like in the Jewish community, like that's your network if you're yeah. connected to the Jewish community. And like every Rosh Hashanah dinner and Shabbat dinner is a networking event. You just didn't mm-hmm. know it. Sometimes you're really just networking to find, you know, your your alleged soulmate, but you don't know that. And either. that's Catholic as well. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. So I had no clue how to network. And so it was really helpful with Danielle to understand like what are informational interviews and like that I should go do informational interviews with people to just understand like what is the day in the life of this type of job? How do I get my my foot in the door and what are the skills I need to be building up to do this and yeah. also aligning my passions like I spoke about a few minutes ago. Thank you so much for bringing informational interview on here. So So few people know that's an option. Yeah. It's, I mean, literally the game changer. Like you can Google informational interview questions and then pick five of them, call some, you know, reach out. You know, I know this from when I was still in the, the corporate tech and I was a global consultant and people started approaching me about this. It's like, hey, I think you're so fascinating. I would love to know what you do in your job. Like, of course, I'm going to make time for that. It was so wonderful. Yes. Yes. People say yes. And like, I say yes Mm -hmm. when people reach out to me and just keep saying yes. And we can all help each other. Level idea. Great. (laughs) So, (laughs) so informational interviews helped a ton along with like, I like math and logic and processes and optimization and efficiency and productivity going down this finance path. And it's like where you start your informational interviews is a bit tricky, right? Well, I don't know anyone in finance, or I don't know anyone in numbers and math. Like then you need to go to LinkedIn and do some cold outreach. And you know, that's not going to be a hundred percent received. So be prepared for low return rates, but you'll get hits. Um, And then once you get your first people, you can make sure the last two questions that I was taught to ask uh, by my career coach was one, um, this has been so helpful what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. And that's huge. No one ever said, really asked for anything with one exception. Someone wanted me to set their sister up with someone on a date. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I can, I can do that. So that happened, but so that was one question I'm supposed to ask. And then the other question was, you know, now that you know this about me, who are one or two more people you think I should talk to? Power. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Like that's yes, the actual yes. network. The network has to expand. If you did, if you talk to one person and then like walk away and be like, "Well, that was neat," that doesn't become yeah. a web very quickly. It stops. So you have yeah. to ask that and then follow up with a thank you email and say, "Oh, reminder mm-hmm. to please connect me with Javante and Joe and blah blah blah." And so mm-hmm. making sure you follow up and ask for that. So that was huge. And I got tremendously lucky with my first informational interview. I was driving for Uber at the time and I drove for Uber, I think equal parts because I just love hustling mostly, mm-hmm. probably not equal parts, mostly because I love hustling <laughs> and thought that it was such a cool concept that I could drive my car around with strangers in it. That's wonderful. It also helped complement the educator's salary. And I like 
-hmm. it was just a way to disconnect and like unplug and drive people around. So fine. So Uber actually had a client who utilized Uber to learn how to do small talk, not small talk, but like interpersonal talk. Yeah. I mean, it is with people they'd never met before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This person was from a tiny, very specific culture. Okay. And just hadn't been exposed before and was really suffering in their career. Mm. Yeah. So that's a that's awesome. Great way. Yeah. It, I mean, I learned many skills and I stopped during the pandemic, but I'm going next yeah. week to re-up my license because I'm just found so much find so much joy in it. So fine, so I'm so I'm driving and I am talking with a couple in the back seat and telling them how I'm like probably gonna be moving on from being a principal, but I'm not sure where to and this is what I'm interested in and blah blah blah. And the woman in the back seat Sarah said, I'm the CEO of Einstein's and Caribou Coffee, and I'd love to get coffee with you. And I was like, hello. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. So she wrote down her email address. I chased her for months, emailing and reminding and emailing, mostly with ghosting or like email me in a couple months, she'd say. I'm like, all right, Mm -hmm. well, we're going to do this. So we did it. (laughs) So it was just like a great beginning. And I think one of the biggest things about information, there's like three value, three, yeah, three things that make informational interviews valuable. One is legitimately learning the day-to-day skills of a person. If you're making a career pivot, you have transferable skills. That's, that's real, no matter what the pivot is, but it's hard to know what you're transferring if you don't know where it's transferring to. So by getting so these true. like specific things of like, what does a data analyst do? What does a finance person do? I'm able to say like, oh, I did this in education. I, you know, I told stories with data to my students to inspire them to do better on tests or to teachers to make this teacher move. It was just like a lot easier to connect the dots for myself and for the people I was interviewing with. So that's like value add one. Value add two is, I think the main reason people do this is, oh, like, I'll find a job this way, right? Yeah. This person will remember me or they have a job right now and they'll call me up. That's never happened to me. That's fine. It's happened to lots of other people, I'm sure. And the third that was really most valuable to me was getting many, many at-bats telling my story. And I, I didn't understand like what people at the beginning of my career pivot, I think mostly my career coach probably initially was like, you need like to figure out your story, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, mm-hmm. what, what is the story I'm telling? And I'm like, <laughs> pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty transparent yeah. as you can tell. I was telling the honest story. I'm not saying my eventual story was a lie, but it was definitely not like the real, real raw story. I wasn't like, and I turned and I turned into oncoming, you know, I didn't say all these things. It was like, you tell the story you need to tell and you tell slices of the story. And eventually when you're in a real relationship with them, you tell the rest of the story. It's not like being deceitful. It's just putting your best foot forward, showing what you can bring the company, not like pointing out all these things that weren't the most productive, valuable part of your, your life. Yeah. And that's also true for adding things into your story. So when I was an executive traveling Mm, the world, I didn't share that I had been born to a single mom, had a stutter, knew poverty that made me an outsider so quickly. But when it became about inspiring women in technology to stay in technology, to thrive, to shift it, to make the world better, who I am and why that matters to me so much it matters that I experience poverty. Totally. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so powerful. 
you are just dropping the truth bombs and the information left and right here, girl. Okay, perfect. <laughs> More truth bombs potentially coming. So yeah, just like a billion at bats telling my story. And when I felt comfortable in the informational interviews, I would tell my story. Let me tell you 90 seconds about myself. And then I have some questions for you. Blah, blah, blah. 90 second story questions for the people. And that gives them the context to actually answer the questions in, from a lens that makes sense for, for you as the receiver of the information. And then if I felt comfortable after all my million questions, I would, also known as five questions, don't ask a million questions. I would ask, you know, I shared with you my story. Do you have any feedback? How did that resonate? And I did not ask all of them because I wasn't that comfortable. I was trying to impress them. But in the few cases that I did, I got incredible feedback. I had met with someone who was in my charter school network who had pivoted to UX design. And she was like, yeah, you need, like, this is too real. I lived it too. And you need to tell this other version of yourself right now, because this is not going to resonate with the people who may or may not want to hire you at this point. So anyway, information on reviews were key. Sarah, the CEO, connected me with her neighbor, whose cousin was in a data science boot camp. And so I then decided to go into so Sarah, the person in my backseat, a.k.a. Neighbor, cousin. Correct. See, you never know. You, you never yeah, know. You and don't. that's why it's so important to talk and tell and be open. Correct. Receive. Yes, exactly. Wow. Okay. So connected with him, the cousin, and really liked what I heard about what he was learning. Python and SQL, data manipulation, some machine learning. And so I looked into boot camps. There's some that were in person, some that were remote. I chose one that was remote and was more self-paced. It was half mm -hmm. the price. You got like a mentor. I worked with an amazing man who is a data scientist at Ford working on autonomous vehicles. Uh, they do really cool things yeah, over he's, there. He's a baller. And so, yeah, I mean, if you can hack the self-paced part of it, if you have the discipline to do that, that's the way to go. So again, half the price tag and it was half the time, 20 hours mm. a week I could work while doing this 20 hour a week boot camp. I wasn't just like saying, okay, for six right. months, I won't have any income. I moved into my mom's basement with my wife and I Ubered part-time. I did my class part-time. I taught English to Spanish speaking adults in like this factory that hired me to do that, which was amazing. I tutored in a school and then I actually got to long-term sub. This was probably the coolest part. I got to long-term sub in the high school that my chart middle school fed into. So I got to teach my like sixth, seventh, and eighth graders physics and environmental science in uh, 11th and 12th grade. It was incredible. They are so cool. The best. Yeah. So that was really, really neat. And so all the while working toward completion of my data science certificate and then started interviewing. You do like the hustle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Not, not pretending. I uh, started interviewing as soon as I completed my final project and got a few offers and ended up as a data analyst at a company called PopSockets that sells mm -hmm. phone grips that, you know, yeah. they, they help the phone. Um, and so learned a ton about business and data analytics there. And then a year ago, moved into a marketing analytics role at Fivetran, where it was, the learning curve was, the learning curve was steep at PopSockets. And then again at Fivetran, because I was going from selling $12 phone grips direct mm -hmm. to consumer to selling, you know, 50,000 
dollar contracts, software contracts to businesses, mm-hmm. business to business. So totally different ballgame. The marketing yeah. scene is not the same. And Ew. therefore me trying to pull data together was not the same. But I learned a ton, again, mm-hmm. hustled a ton to to figure that out. And then recently in February, moved into a a role as a senior manager of global operations within the revenue operations department. Do you want me yeah. to share a little bit yeah. about what in the world this Please, is? Please, because I think this is, you know, we have this misconception that in and around tech means I have to be doing something that directly relates into a product. And revenue operations is an option out there that suits so many personality and people don't know about it. Yep. Totally. Such a powerfully impactful space. Yep. So yeah. Agreed. Revenue operations typically sits like as more of like a neutral party between the other go-to-market teams. We're focused on efficiency, productivity, and like the best path to our revenue targets. And that involves like the processes and the systems that get us there. Like a lot of the work we do is we're kind of like the the internal product team in that you know, we work out of Salesforce and a few different, many other tech tools, like within our tech stack. <laughs> um, and so our marketers and sales reps are are in those tools every day. And we're trying to make the best experience for them to be able to spend their time on what they do best, which is selling and marketing and building relationships with our, with our partners. Yeah. The first time that I was exposed to it, I was told, well, when we want to know what's working, how quickly it's working and what's not working, we talk to them. <laughs> and then we Sounds listen. Right. Sounds about right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, lot so about from education all the way to tech. Yeah. I'm very, very grateful to be where I am today. Yeah. And there's just so much in your story about clarity and learning and willing to take the risks and listening to yourself and to other people and going in this zigzag is wrong. Mm. That's not feeling like the right description, but taking bold steps, really bold steps. I think like I hear, you know, I'm Mm. sure you've heard many times the jungle gym analogy of like progressing through your career and that it's not a ladder. I think it's like, I took like really big jumps across the, across and down and up said jungle gym. (laughs) It's like a 4D jungle gym. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's just so much in here about informational interviews and how you can find your passions. And oh, thank you. Of course. So last question I ask everybody before we discover how people can contact you and stay in touch with your journey. Perfect. Who's your role model, your brave role model you'd like to share with us? I'm thinking about this a lot, and I think it's because of this article I read and kind of referenced about eight years ago, an HBR article on leadership, and that you're really just trying on pieces of people as, you know, moves that people are making as you go. And so I have so many people that I've tried on different moves of theirs and found whether it's effective or not for myself or tweaked it so that it could be. So it's like so hard to to nail down one person. But if I had to, I think my first real brave role model was a woman named Becky at PopSocket. She was the chief marketing officer. And being in education that we didn't, it wasn't like, I'm a woman, I can't believe this. And I'm 
trying to lead. It was like, that was normal because yeah. the men took all the high paying jobs in corporate America. Mm -hmm. And we, some, some women decided, you know, we should, you know, help society and be in education and take low paying jobs. So it was not like a thing that I ever really thought about that I was a woman in a school. I was more so fighting the fight for our kids of color and our, to give them the access and that they deserved for their future. And so in moving into the corporate space, it became very clear that the fact that I was a woman was more of an identity marker that mattered to me. And so Becky was like my first person who I like had conversations with that about and like really saw how she operated in a room of all men repeatedly. She also like knew she was like authentically herself and knew how to leverage her strengths to show up and like influence the other people in the room. When I think about the other people that come to mind who would qualify as like my role models, yeah, uh, Betsy, my boss in, in uh, school days and Carmen, my boss here, they all like are, take on fairly masculine characteristics, what, are, what would have been deemed masculine characteristics. And Becky really didn't. And so it's interesting to think about her influence as someone like being her authentically woman self and influencing others. That is gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. I had someone in my life who did something similar, but it was a man who grew up as a black man in the United States. And he would really choose to show up in more fullness of yeah. his black identity. Yeah. Like not unfortunately, cause it wouldn't be accepted. Um, well, at least yeah. in a European company seven years ago, but more, right? And that was really, I was an American in Germany trying to make my accent perfect and trying to, I would play around with the fact that I was kooky and friendly and, you know, superficial is a word because I like these kind of connections. Let's just dive in. I don't need okay. to know everything about you before. Okay, you're my okay, friend, got it, right? got it. And and watching him and experiencing him over a longer period of time gave me a role model and a freedom to step more into me. Yeah. 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 Totally so hear that. Thank you. So how can people follow your continued jungle gym? <laughs> Acrobatics. Yeah. I mean, you're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn. Pretty sure I'm just Jess Tillis there. And happy. we'll put the link in on the show notes. Perfect. Happy to accept your connection. Be one of your first informational interviews if it's relevant. Yeah. Wow. Ding, ding. <laughs> Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jess, I know that you are incredibly busy and Five Train is growing like mad. So I am so appreciative of your time. Of course. Really fun. Thank you. All right. I'll see you when I'm back in Colorado. Perfect. Excited. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Celebrate Brave podcast. If you're ready to build your brave, to live a life you love and create a career that matters to you, reach out. Together, we can spend time one-on-one -on -one to explore how I can help you. And until then, share this episode with people in your life 
people who can join our movement to redefine brave, how we identify it, experience it, and celebrate it.